Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, the home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloweeny. My name is Mr. Craigers, and I am one of the hosts of Splatter Chatter. And my name is Ms. Belmore, and I am one of the other hosts of Splatter Chatter. She sure is. And we would both like to welcome you to episode 87, in which we are going to be talking about Robert Eggers' psychological terror fest, The Lighthouse, mm-hmm. starring Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe, and one very suspicious looking seagull. <laughs> <laughs> we thought this you workshop that on your drive home listen 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 i'm not saying i didn't workshop it i'm not saying i did you just interpret that however you choose to interpret Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is he not a suspicious looking seagull am i wrong he is i mean he he's he seems like he's got um machinations like if like if natalie dormer was a seagull Mm -hmm. it's this guy it's if you're playing among us with birds the seagull is an imposter very sus very sus but we thought the lighthouse would be a good choice for um the first uh of our summer episodes yeah, that's right you thought it was going to be jaws it's, it's a different sea we have a new sea themed horror we have a new sea horror we've got lighthouses we've got rocky coasts we have sailors we have mermaids or do we we have um, a lot of homoerotic subtext which also makes this episode great for pride and sometimes it's just text (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes it's just plain old text um so yeah it should be a great episode but before we dive into the lighthouse let's do uh, read, watch, and listen, check in. It's been a minute since our Moms of Horror episode. Miss um, Mel, what's been on your radar lately? Any yes. Um, tell us about? Yeah, so let's see. I definitely, I like had the list in my brain. I was like, I gotta talk about all these things. I know, right? Um, oh, well, okay, let's work backwards. Most recently, as I told you about, I finally watched Behind the Mask. Yes! The the Leslie Vernon story? Leslie Vernon, yeah. Um, great little gem. So good. Um, excellent. It's this, for anyone out there who doesn't know, who was, you know, like me and vaguely aware, it is a... Um, mockumentary about a guy who basically like set in a world where um all the sort of horror slasher killers are real like they'll talk about they'll be like oh yeah like that thing that happened in Haddonfield a couple years ago and that sort of thing and this guy Leslie Vernon wants to sort of become a the next slasher serial killer person and this documentary crew is following him while he's he's learning how to do this and it's fun and it's insightful and it's very meta and it takes twists. And even though some of them are pretty obvious, it's still a lot of, a lot of fun. It's a ton of fun. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Um, it's long, but it was, it was, uh, it is long, which I forget when I, every time I revisit it, um, but they do a lot of good buildup. I feel like before mm-hmm. they, sort of before that major twist comes in for the third act. 
Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I feel like um, it kind of gives itself away a little bit because it walks through how the ending will go in the middle and you're like, okay, well, if you're doing this, then, you know, um, but no, like, even if you can guess halfway through kind of what's going down, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the sequence where he's um, going through and prepping the house. Like he's yes, yeah. basically like showing us like how uh, a slasher would game the system, like making sure that uh, well, you know, the phone lines are cut or like he like preps stuff with the windows and the ladder and all of that. And it's just like, yeah, this is how I make sure that, you know, they can't get away or that they get away like just at the right time, the final mm-hmm. girl. Yeah. No, that was a ton of fun. I kind of wished I had watched it like in October, but I can always just rewatch it. October. That's fine. Yeah. Um, that would make a good double feature with the final girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those these meta slasher send-ups. Yeah. I um I also read it. This actually wasn't a collection of horror short stories. There just happened to be a, a story in here that was very horrorish. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the collection uh, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky by Leslie Ooh. Neka Arima. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, very good collection overall. I forget like which, what it was called and my book is upstairs. So I will tweet out which one it is and let you all know. But it's basically, it's about, a, it's like set in a world where um, the narrator, like basically what they do is young women construct like dolls out of objects and then their mothers bless them and the dolls come to life based on the materials that they made them out of and this woman like her mom just continues to refuse to bless the babies that she makes so she decides to construct one out of the various shed hair at the salon she works at and um the woman who owns the salon who kind of like is a sort of Freudian character, like she offers her things and takes, you know, more than she asks or more than she gives, you know, blesses the the baby and it comes to life. And it's this little hair monster. That's just Ooh. like really creepy. It's just a totally creepy story. And it was very good. Um, so. I feel like making a doll out of hair is a terrible idea. Yeah. Well, and but they even not say like, within the mythology of the story she like mentions that like oh they always say that you shouldn't make it out of other people's hair because it takes on like the attributes of yeah so that was freaky um but yeah it was very similar to bad hair in that way that the hair was like eat it like what the hair had to eat and consume Mm. and that sort of thing um so good free time for um for uh hair horror um yeah and then the other thing is as of today i got to see the Candyman trailer yeah looks good huh yeah no it looks very good best use of say my name (laughs) seriously yeah and i was wondering i was like wait it's like like just the other day i was like it's coming out really soon like Like next month not really but like almost there's like no promo for it and then they did the trailer and I was like, oh, thank yeah. God. Yeah, it's coming out in August, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Um, lots is coming up in addition to Candyman. There's the Forever Purge, mm-hmm. um, which will be... Which is the pandemic one. It's the one where a pandemic happens during the purge. Yeah, and everyone just has to find a way to, how to deal with that. They're like, we're still going to have the pandemic during the purge because my body, my choice or something. Um, yeah, and uh, Escape Room 2. Oh, I did see a trailer for that. That seemed mind fucky i never it, saw the first one so i don't the first one was a fun enough ride mm-hmm. you know if you just want something like kind of mindless on a saturday afternoon or something mm-hmm. um, oh and i watched the conjuring I oh forgot. yeah i was gonna say some, some stuff that since we recorded uh lots of stuff actually the conjuring of course um mm-hmm. uh review is up over on the blog i think we talked about it briefly after we saw it. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I would say our general consensus was it was fine. Yeah. It's it's fun because those movies are always fun. Um, but definitely step down. Yeah. From from the previous ones. Um you could feel Juan's absence. Yeah. But um I, I honestly like I need like Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga like get nominated for like a joint Oscar for most believable couple. Seriously. <laughs> and that's like, I mean, that chemistry, which is so on point between the two of them, like really carried this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like they they are the like that's the thing is is like you could keep making these movies and they could continue to have diminishing returns, but if those two are in it, I will still like watch it absolutely um yeah it's definitely very different from the first two but um but it was it was fine from what it was i'm not sure what i want to see next from this franchise and like this Mm -hmm. universe of films but it feels like they need a shake-up yeah i mean i wasn't thrilled with the nun no the nun was not all that interesting what's interesting here is like okay you had your first sort of human villain quote-unquote and it felt like there really wasn't much done with that she was boring yeah so she didn't feel threatening yeah i don't know i i I don't even know what you would do i mean the fun thing about this is these it's basically like a superhero movie um like uh in this in this film version elizabeth warren like essentially has elizabeth warren (laughs) that's not her name imagine if it was elizabeth warren i knew you know what's funny is like i was thinking about that because they're also from like they're from new england elizabeth warren's from new england it's (laughs) messing me up lorraine warren basically has superpowers um no relation (laughs) no relation um no but i'd be interested to see i know that they've got a planned movie They've got like two planned movies that are in development right now. Yeah, because I isn't it another nun movie? It's another nun movie. And it's then... one for the 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 weird, creepy, tall, crooked <laughs> man. Um, and I think there might be one more. I know that they had originally intended this movie to kind of set up for a spinoff on the demon that was in this movie. And then they edited most of the demon's backstory out of the movie. Um, I was going to say, we don't, we don't really care about the demon. And yeah, no, I'd be more interested to see a, um, 
backstory on the she's just credited as the occultist um right but um yeah i mean i don't know i i'd be interested to to continue watching more just because i find these very fun and also this is now the second highest grossing horror franchise of all time (laughs) yeah which is behind only godzilla which is pretty wild. Yeah. So I think that they can afford to continue to, to go for it. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I just, uh, it needs a... It needs it something. Needs a, it needs something. It needs something. Mm-hmm. Um, a sequel I did enjoy, though, quite a bit was A Quiet Place 2. Oh, I haven't seen that yet just because I wasn't super thrilled with the first one. And I was like, I don't know if there's anything more I could get from this world, but... Yeah, and I would say if you're that kind of person, mm-hmm. the second one probably won't thrill you either. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows us a bit more of the world um, and kind of just sort of like ramps up the stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does it well. And uh, Emily Blunt was great. John Kaczynski comes back for like the prologue. We see how it all started. Um, it was just good. It was solid. Yeah. That's fun. Um, yeah, and I still have to watch St. Maud, Maud, which yeah, has been on Hulu for a while now. Uh-huh. Um, the Green Knight comes out next month. Yeah, Green Knight's coming out next month. Um, which, did so you was- see A24 is selling a tabletop Green Knight role-playing game? Oh my gosh! I kind of want to buy it. I kind of want to get it too. Yeah. So. And then we play it. And, and then we, we talk. play it. Anyway, what else is coming up? <laughs> um, M. Night Shyamalan's new movie, Old. Right, which it's so funny because I remember seeing that trailer and I was like, oh, this looks dope. And then like when the title came across the screen, I was like, oh, that kind of took the wind out of the sails a little <laughs> bit, but. <laughs> it's a bad title. <laughs> but uh, I'll go see it, I guess. <laughs> I think it looks good. Uh, no, I was like so into it. It was just so funny how much they were like, we're going to really stick this landing with this title. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just like, okay. All right. Yeah, not the best title, but the film itself looks pretty good. Yeah, And I feel like he has quietly been kind of finding himself again in uh, totally in these movies. Um, I feel like the big, the big disappointment, like the the peak of the big disappointment from him was when he fucked up the um, Avatar film adaptation. And then he kind of got quiet after that and like quietly put out these films. Yeah. And then he's been like climbing back, like with the visit and split. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a bit of a stumble with glass, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if of those last three films, two were two were really good. So <clears throat> yeah, and I mean, you know, I think some of his films that we sort of harangue um, definitely are better. <coughs> Lady in the Water. Yeah, well, maybe not that one, but some of them are are better than I think people. Um, like I feel like some of them have aged better than when they first were released. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um... And some of them haven't. Some of them have really just soured. 
really sour. Have you ever seen um, his like his first two films before he moved into horror? Before he did The Sixth Sense, I have not. Um, one is one is like a total student film that about this uh, Indian American uh, college student that goes to study in India. And it's played by M. Night Shyamalan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it's total like, okay, this is, you're just doing that like film student autobiographical thing. Right. Like I didn't know what to write for the script. So. Yeah. But then his, the other one, his second film, what the hell is it called? Oh, I can't think of it. It's about this kid at a Catholic private school who, it's like a year in his life um, after his grandpa dies. And he actually, I saw it for the first time recently. And he, at the end of the movie, there's a twist. And I'm going to give it away. So spoiler alert. <laughs> where the new kid at the school, right? That it's the reincarnation of his grandfather. It was the reincarnation of his yes. grandfather. <laughs> was his grandfather's ghost. And only the main character was seeing him all year. That was like the proto, he was like statement of intent for the sixth yeah. sense. And I saw that and I was like, what? You should have known. <laughs> I was just like, he did the same twist back to back. Right. He was like, well, no one saw my student film or whatever. Yeah, so no one's like, well, no one has seen these films. So I'm just, so I'm just gonna do them on a with a bigger budget. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I can, but yeah. It is funny though, because it doesn't help the fact that, you know, people are like, you know, will be like one hit wonder with him. Um, and then it's like, okay, like not only that, but you did it twice. <laughs> you did it twice, not even once. It's just, you're just lucky no one has seen the other one. That's hysterical. But I you have. So What's that? But you have. But I have, and I know. And if I ever meet him... <laughs> That's what I'm gonna listen. Say. You come to Philadelphia, you'll see him around. <laughs> I'm gonna find him. He would show up in the Barnes and Noble. And, well, he, you know, not recently when I worked there, but his kids would show up in there and like they would go there for their summer reading. Um, so keep your eye out when you come visit. He's around. Keep your eye out, man. I'm like, oh, there goes M. Night Shyamalan being weird. Oh, M. Night, <laughs> but. Tonight, mm. we take a journey to 19th century undisclosed New England coastline. Right. Potentially Maine. Although I guess like Ephraim has that accent because he came from like a logging camp up in Maine. I don't know. But um, yeah, I don't know. Somewhere along, somewhere between Connecticut and Canada. Nova Scotia. Is where, is where we set our scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's take a listen to the trailer. Tell me, what's a timber man want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living. It's like any man. Starting new. On the run. Secrets, are you? No, sir. Watch this be your be. 
When did you first see this film and what were your initial impressions? So I saw it very recently mm-hmm. because I did not manage to see it um, before the pandemic. And once the pandemic happened, I was like, this is not the movie to watch right now. It's not the time. So I went quite a long time. I did not watch it until I want to say March of this year, mm-hmm. this year being 2021 things are a bit more chill yeah i just i watched it one day because i was like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna finally do it um and i did it and it's funny because i had a friend who saw it in theaters and when she got out of theaters she's like all i'm gonna say is that they clearly gave him like a carte blanche this (laughs) um but you know she enjoyed it um but um yeah it's like it's wacky stuff yeah did you did you like it when you watched it a couple months back or were you kind of like unsure how you felt about it or it's interesting because like um for the most part I was like yeah this is fine you know I enjoy it you know there's parts of it where I was like oh yeah like this is disturbing or this is upsetting and it's obviously supposed to be and then there are parts where I'm like oh that's just like a really good visual or or that looks really awesome like it had very good um like it's one of those things where I, I felt like in terms of um you know it, it left an impression in a way that I liked as you know like the the like high level course of what happens and like the images more so than like the actual like surface narrative if that makes sense yeah that absolutely makes sense so and I think yeah. you're you're spot on I had very similar impressions I also did not get a chance to see it like when it was released theatrically it wasn't playing anywhere near me um interesting which is kind of odd and I mean well I mean like it is like whatever it's like an indie film I guess um a24 released a24 released it and it's not like Robert Eggers is like no one right he was the darling of uh Hollywood horror after the witch yeah um so yeah I remember where it was I mean I know a couple places where it was for sure playing but I feel like it was playing at most of the places near me that were more mainstream um, theaters. Yeah, it was really odd. I remember, I remember being like frustrated, but also like really surprised because it 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 seemed like some sort of strange regional thing that I like, mm-hmm. couldn't find it here. Um, so I also didn't didn't see it for a good while. Um, I did get it in before the pandemic. Well done. But um, yeah, it, it was, yeah, it was definitely kind of that thing where like, 
and you were talking about it and I was like oh yeah this is not a movie to watch in quarantine no um, um and then I rewatched it uh for this episode mm-hmm. so I've only seen it the two times um and I feel like this time around I appreciated it a bit more than the first time yeah I can uh, see that I didn't dislike it by any means the first time but it was like kind of like that first time I was just like I'm, I'm behind. I haven't seen this yet. I, I just need to watch it, mm-hmm. you know? And this time I was like, okay, well, I have seen it. I know what to expect. Let me like enjoy it a bit more, you know? There is like something interesting about that just in the larger sense of um, like films and TV shows and stuff that are like better the second time. Like it makes me wonder like, you know, like whatever, like that's getting deep into like, artistic theory and stuff but it's like is it supposed to be that way like obvious you know like does somebody want to make an impression one time or do people like want to invite people to to come back and like do multiple readings you know and that sort of thing um but yeah it's like one of those things where it's like there's a deeper debate about like the merits of like watching something once and totally getting it or being okay with whatever that impression is versus like oh yeah like when I watched the second and third time I got new things out of it and right that sort of thing absolutely and this you know regardless of like where people might fall on that idea I think this film is set up in a way that you're you are going to pick up stuff more on repeat viewings. Yeah, especially because there's a twist. Like you're obviously, right. whenever there's a twist, it's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to be on the lookout this time for the clues. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. Right. So as to the film itself, uh, it centers around uh, two men, uh, two a lighthouse keeper and his wiki uh, who arrive at a very remote lighthouse, again, somewhere off the coast of New England for um, it's like three or four week stretch that they're going to stay there. Um, but a storm ends up stranding them there for much longer. And um, this turns out to be not very good at all for either <laughs> because of the isolation and the effects of the storm lead to terrible consequences. Mm -hmm. So um, where does the idea for this story come from, Ms. Mel? Do you want to tell us a bit about um, that kind of background and inspiration? Yeah. So there's a couple places. Um, The first most obvious place, although it really doesn't bear any resemblance to this in the final product, is the Edgar Allan Poe short story, um, called The Lighthouse, which was an unfinished short story um, that he had like kind of began before he succumbed to rabies or whatever it was that killed him. <laughs> um, and it basically, it's just a series of diary entries um, from like a lighthouse keeper on, on an island off the coast of Norway um, and not much else beyond that, um, you know. That's kind of like namesake where this stuff comes from. Right. Um, but there's a lot of really creepy shit that has happened at historical lighthouses. <laughs> if you can imagine that. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, I have um, one of those like uh, 
like Time mag- like magazine sort of like glossy mm-hmm. like, collector things. That's like creepy places in America. Mm-hmm. It's divided into like hotels and asylums and ghost towns. And there's a whole section on haunted lighthouses. It's so interesting. Like, you know, I would I would actually be interested to read like books about like the histories of this stuff because I'm like, they're all the same goddamn shape. <laughs> you know, like you stick them out on like remote, uh, you know, like rocks in the middle of, it's not even like an island, you know, it's bizarre to me. Um, yeah. But anyway, two incidents in particular um, kind of were places that Eggers pulled from to develop this story. Um, the first one, which is like the most like content wise one um, was the events of the Smalls Lighthouse, mm-hmm. which happened um, in 1801 off the coast of Wales. Um, and by off the coast of Wales, I mean 20 miles. Damn. Yeah. On a very, very tiny, like literal spit of land. If you look up um, this lighthouse, like it's, you know, you, you couldn't, you couldn't park a car there. It's very tiny. Imagine being 20 miles off the coast of Wales in 1801. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and this lighthouse was built out there in like 1818, uh, 1766. Jesus. Um, it's older, what were you going to say? Older than the United States. Yeah. Uh, the first lighthouses were believed to have built in like 1730s. So it's, you know, it's, you know, it's in the, the, the late, the late early generation of, of lighthouses, as it were. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's out on a very tiny place. If you look at where it is on a map, it's like just a dot in the ocean. Like it's 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 nuts. And that's the other thing too. I'm like, okay, 20 miles out, like what good is that gonna do me? Well, and also if it's the only thing out there, what is it warning ships away from? I'm not sure it's so much warning them away as much as saying like you're coming here, in. Yeah, here is land. Like, uh, follow this. Like, I'm, I'm guessing. Like, I guess I don't know enough about like what. Um, because my understanding was lighthouses warned ships of, you know, land or rocks or formations. Right. Don't um, get too close. And that sort of thing. This is positioned very far off of land. I'm guessing because it's meant to like signal to ships that have been crossing the Atlantic that you know they're almost come this way yeah um regardless um in 1801 two men both named thomas um were stationed at the lighthouse thomas griffith and thomas howell um and they reportedly did not get along Mm. um that's kind of something that people have talked about after this happened just because obviously no one was there to know but the story supposedly is that they just, they did not get along. Uh, and basically what happened was, is that at some point Griffith, Griffith became ill or injured in some way. Um, and being 20 miles out to sea and like the only time you're going to, you know, get help is if your relief shows up in four weeks or whatever it is at the end of your, right. your stay there. So he dies of, of whatever this is. 
And Howell became worried that, you know, he was like, okay, well, if I get rid of his body, they're going to call me a murderer. They're going to blame me for his death. Mm. So he started out by storing the body. Like he just kept it and was like, okay, well, I'll wait till somebody shows up and I'll explain what happened. And then supposedly this happened for about, they estimate about three weeks. And this, like the smell of of the rotting body started to really get to him and he started freaking out. Um, So he built a coffin because I guess he had previously done a stint as like a, a carpenter for coffin making or something. So he builds like a makeshift coffin and puts him in it and sets him out the, the body out on like the shelf, like the, mm. the sea shelf um, and just puts it out there. And I don't know if he's hoping like the sea is going to take him or it's just like, okay, well it's out there. And I've, I've done what I can do. I've dealt with it. Um, and what ends up happening again, supposedly is that like the storm and the sea, like break apart the casket so the body's exposed and it's like blowing in the wind and passing ships could see it. And they thought it was a man waving at them and they had no idea it was a dead body. Oh my gosh. Um, And meanwhile, like Hal is like losing it because he's like on this Island all by himself with just a dead body and he's freaking out. And by the time, um, you know, like relief shows up, he's like lost his mind. I mean, yeah. Um, And supposedly this led to the, um like commission i think it's called the the commissioners of the northern lights um setting up a rule that you had to have three people at a lighthouse ah instead of just two um no more duos yeah so that's one of the main stories um the other one and the one that um is probably more famous and there's actually a there's been a couple movies about it or at least one with gerard butler and a book that I think either just came out or is coming out this year that I think is based on this as well as kind of a historical fiction, Mm. but it's the uh, incident at the Flannan Isle lighthouse, Mm. um, which is the Flannan Isle, Flannan Isles are on the coast of Northwest Scotland, like way up there. Um, And this happens in 1900. There are three lighthouse keepers here because, you know, we had that incident and now we have a hundred years. bit of a snafu (laughs) yeah so basically what happens now is there's three lighthouse keepers and then one of them gets rotated out every couple weeks and they go like that so there's three of them here it's thomas marshall uh james ducat and donald MacArthur. um they're doing their thing you know lighthousing as far as anyone knows it's chill um and then their relief comes to show up Mm -hmm. um a boat docks with the guy who's um supposed to relieve one of them and like the lighthouse had not been operating to like call them in to land which they thought that's bizarre so they get there and they start looking around um and they find that the place is empty the men's coats are still on their hooks um there's food from like half-finished meals sitting like on the kitchen counter they find that like chairs had been overturned as if there had been like some sort of scuffle. Um, the the clock on the wall is stopped, which is kind of creepy. Yeah, um, you know, but, so they're seeing all this stuff, but there's no, there's nothing. There's no signs of anyone. Um, the island that this um, lighthouse was positioned on, Eileen Moore, um, was supposedly had a local reputation 
for supernatural stuff, particularly negative things. It was the ancestral home of Clan MacPhail. There was a lot of ruins there, including a ruin of a chapel dedicated, they think, to St. Flannan, but they don't know which one because there is many, apparently. All this is going on. They never find bodies or a trace of any of the three men. They're just gone. So we, know, to this we have day, no idea what happened to them. The official stance of the community. They think I'm an aisle. Yeah. So what, what's interesting, though, so they find their logbooks. And clearly they're having like a deteriorating mental state. And for three days before the last entry, they're talking about these horrid storms that are happening. And one guy's crying and it's all this other stuff. But all the ships that came by were like, no, like there was no storm. Like it was chill. Um, like there was no reports of a storm whatsoever. Um, and the last log, which was from December 15th, reads, um, storm ended, sea calm, God is over all. And then that's it. That Nothing is else. so creepy. Yeah. And the official stance of the, the commissioners, the, like, the Lighthouse Commission, was that they had just gotten swept out to sea while they were doing their thing. All three of them? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's that. Um, but yeah, we never, it's, it's a really creepy story that just never they're just like yeah these three guys just disappeared we don't they're just gone they're just gone um so yeah That's so cool. those those two those two stories are kind of like where um Edgar started to draw this this tale from yeah amazing and really creepy yeah um yeah so Eggers um who had before this film uh, written and directed The Witch from Witch. 2015, um, was really attached to this idea of um, the lighthouse um, before The Witch even hit theaters, because it was actually when he was having dinner with his younger brother, Max, um, and kind of lamenting that he had been pitching the witch around Hollywood for three years and, and wasn't getting any bites, any takers. No one wanted to fund um, the film. And he was just sort of like venting his frustrations when Max shared his own struggles with a screenplay that he was working on about a ghost story that was set in a lighthouse. Um, and that it was gonna be loosely based on Poe's unfinished short story he was going to call it Burnt Island, I believe was the original name of the story. So then Robert is like, hang on, I've got some ideas there. I've got some tweaks for this story. So he kind of offers his own sort of twist on this lighthouse set story that his brother is working on. And that helps Max get unstuck in the writing process. And together they start doing their research, um, they come across uh, this Welsh myth, this story about the two wikis at the Smalls Lighthouse, both named Thomas, that Ms. Mel just told us about. Um, they uh, are coming across, you know, all these various other nautical lighthouse things. They're, they're looking into mythology and kind of as they're in the middle of all of this, the witch finally gets its funding. So this, uh, background work on the lighthouse gets put on hold um, because you know that 
Robert Eggers had to go make the witch. And um, that's a long process. And then it's a long process when you're done. And it's a long process when it's debuting in theaters. Um, so things in the lighthouse were on hold until after the theatrical rollout. The witch was obviously very successful um, commercially and critically. And that sort of launched Eggers um, into critical darling status, basically to the point where, um, you know, the studios were basically just like, you can pick whatever the hell you want to do for your next project and we will just fund it because you knocked it out of the park on your, your first time up at bat. And so he had a couple of other projects in the work, but um, for this sort of like carte blanche sophomore effort, he chose the lighthouse. And um, so then he and Max dive back in, they're rewriting drafts, um, they're incorporating the research they find, all of this intense historical research. They really want to reflect the period accurately. They set the story in 1890s New England. So um, I guess 100 years-ish from the Smalls mm -hmm. story and like a couple years removed from the Flan and Isle story. Um, both of them are really drawn to uh, photographs from the 1890s, particularly in New England. They use that to sort of come up with the style for the film. Uh, Robert Eggers watches a lot of um, 1930s nautical and maritime set French films. They're both reading a lot of maritime literature that deals with surrealist themes. And they're looking at a lot of uh, symbolist art to get the feel that they want. For the movie. So they draw on the works of Herman Melville, Robert Louis Stevenson, H.P. Lovecraft for some of the weirder elements. Hello, tentacles. Um, and another uh, uh, author that they really draw on heavily, uh, Sarah Orna Jewett. Um, they really rely on her writing to give flavor to the, um, the dialect and the dialogue in particular, because she was known for really nailing um, coastal Maine dialects and speech patterns at this time period when she was writing. She wrote novels, but in order to do that, she did a lot of intense, intense research where she was talking to real life farmers, sailors, and fishermen that lived in the area. Now, did she do it like Stephen King when he has a character say something and then in parentheses the non-main character will talk about how they heard it <laughs> like that did you notice him doing that sometimes yeah that is one of his little ticks, isn't it and it's like i know what main is thank you <laughs> you got it steven <laughs> uh maybe she maybe she does do that i haven't actually looked yeah, at I, it I was like i don't know maybe she does maybe she does maybe it's a main based thing <laughs> that's one of the ticks. that's one of the dialogue mm -hmm. Um, so they rely on her writing a lot to get the historically accurate feel that they want. They also read a number of playwrights, um, particularly when they need to sit down and write the um, conversational sequences, you know, where there's like a lot of intense monologuing and character insight and development. Um, and particularly they look at plays that are dealing with themes of um, male-centric existential crises, and they're looking at plays with that um, 
use the theme of psychosis. Can they like send those list of plays that they read like out? <laughs> I too would be interested in reading. Could you just maybe just quickly uh, tweet that? That'd be really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it sounds like they're like, honestly, like they're reading and like consuming a lot of like really cool media. It sounds yeah. like this would be a fun project to research. But so, so they're doing this and they're finalizing and they're rewriting and they're redrafting again and again and again. And um, as they're doing this, the studio moves into the casting process. Um, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are leads. They're both cast in February of 2018. Both actors had separately um, spoken to Robert Eggers about how much they enjoyed The Witch and said that they wanted to work with him in the future. Um, they didn't meet before they were both cast, but they did meet at a party after Pattinson had signed on to the film. Um, and Defoe was there and Robert Eggers was there. And like Eggers was kind of using the fact that Pattinson had already committed to like sell the movie further to Defoe. Like, hey, don't you want to work with this guy? Um, Robert Pattinson and Robert Eggers, uh, had originally met to discuss Pattinson participating in a different project that was not The Lighthouse, where he, um, Eggers offered him the role of a Victorian gentleman, but Pattinson um, did not feel that this would like challenge his acting abilities. I wonder if that was his uh, Nosferatu remake that he was maybe supposedly working on slash maybe is still eventually gonna do. I could see that because Victorian gentleman, probably mm -hmm. he was offering him Jonathan Harker. Yeah. Um, this is our podcast, Wild Speculations. Yeah. In which, <laughs> <laughs> in which we decide what uh, Hollywood is. We put it out there and we leave it up to Robert Eggers to, to tell us we're wrong. Yeah. So uh, come at us. But um, yeah. And so Eggers is kind of like, fair enough. So they go their separate ways, but by the next time they meet, Pattinson has gotten a copy of the script for The Lighthouse from his agent. He's read it um, and he's like, I think I'm interested in this. And Edgar's is like, okay. And he shows him this video of an intoxicated man screaming over and over again, I am a demon. <laughs> and he's like, this is the energy I'm going for. <laughs> and Basically, Pattinson is like, okay, I'm in. So Edgar sort of explains his vision for the whole film to him. And he's very, very precise in what it's going to be like and what he's going to need from Pattinson. And he's like, this is the way it's going to be. Are you in or are you out? And at that point, Robert Pattinson was very much in. So yeah, then there's that party. Defoe gets signed up convinced to sign on. He has a fairly similar experience talking with Eggers. He um, recalls in the one interview on the DVD um, that Eggers was very much like, this film is gonna be my way or the highway. And Defoe thought that that was pretty unusual for a fairly new director. Um, you know, someone only working on their second film usually is, um, I guess, more collaborative, but not Eggers. So um, I think as we can kind of glean even from their performances, um, Defoe's approach to the, uh, his role 
um, is very spontaneous. He drew a lot on his background in theater. There was um, sort of a lot of uh, improvisation in terms of like the choices he was gonna make each day on set and like his delivery. Um, but Pattinson was the opposite. He was very like well rehearsed and methodical and um, he based everything in his performance on like deep discussions of the script with Eggers, um, which I think is interesting just given how their characters end up coming across. And I could see that even like in what I in my parasocial relationships with both of them <laughs> understand of them as people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so they start filming uh, on April 9th, 2018 in Canada. Filming lasted for 34 days, mostly in on Cape Forshu, which is in Nova Scotia, in Leif Erikson Park and at um, a hangar uh, bay at Yarmouth Airport where a 70 foot lighthouse was constructed for filming because no existing lighthouse was found to be suitable for the needs of the film. I mean, lighthouses are pretty small. To get all the camera and equipment in there would, would be difficult. Um, so it's, it was by all accounts, it was a pretty difficult shoot um, because all of these places are pretty remote. There were a lot of complex logistics because of the way um, this movie is shot. And um, the weather was all natural. There weren't wind or rain machines. So everything we see is the real weather, which, <laughs> makes it great for the film, but very difficult conditions to work in. Um, and I, apparently a lot of slippage on the rocks. Mm. Um, and the, the crew was very worried the, um, during that one night shoot where uh, Patt Pattinson's character like walks into the waves. Mm -hmm. They had been like, I guess, watching the, the surf patterns and they, they were like really concerned he was gonna get swept away by her. Like tie a rope around him. <laughs> Yeah, they, they were like, I think there's a riptide. We might lose him. Um, <laughs> we might lose Pattinson. <laughs> we might lose Pattinson. But then they were like, it was like stressing out the PAs apparently because they couldn't get it right with the lighting. And he had to do that take like 25 times. Ooh. And like, so you just had like these like stressed out PAs on the side all the time. Just like, we're going to lose Pattinson. <laughs> <laughs> they keep sending him into the water. <laughs> so, but obviously he was fine. Yeah, um, that we know. He did get yeah, COVID, right. but that was an unrelated thing. That was an unrelated incident. And um, and so, yeah, and so some of the difficulties, if for those listening that don't know, the film was shot in black and white. It was shot on 35 millimeter with one to 19 to one aspect ratio, which means the frame is a nearly perfect square. Um, and there's an uh, orthochromatic aesthetic that was used in order to evoke 19th century photographs so that the film would look basically like moving photographs from the late 1800s, hmm. um, which is great effects. It's an absolutely beautiful and gorgeous film to look at, but in order to accomplish this, it involves a lot of like really complicated lenses and special cameras and they have to do crazy things with the lighting. So it was a difficult shoot. Um, but a deliberate choice because they wanted to, to make the, the film feel old and um, to make the film feel tight and narrow and claustrophobic um, because that's some of the themes that we're dealing with here. So that was the choice to not use widescreen, which was um, 
a development that only came about in the 1950s. Hmm. So, um, we'll do a quick roll call and then um, we'll briefly walk through the events of the film. Uh, the roll call is nice and short because there's only like four people in this movie. <laughs> um, and we'll start with Robert Pattinson as Ephraim Winslow. Asterisk. Asterisk. Um, thoughts on this performance? Great. Yeah. Yeah. I would say thumbs up. Yeah. Um, crazy. Crazy, unhinged, unhinged, unsettling, dangerous. I mean, people that keep hanging Twilight over him and like write him off because of Edward Cullen. I'm just like, have you seen this man? Right. Yeah, no, I totally, I mean, I feel like Twilight is something that happened to him. Mm -hmm. His agent was like, listen, you can't turn this down. <laughs> you will not. Um, but he's done so many amazing roles since then. And like, this is, this is some incredible acting. So yeah. if you're a Pattinson hater, stop. <laughs> Um, of course, uh, opposite him is Willem Dafoe as Thomas Wake. Great. Classic Great. Willem Dafoe. Classic Dafoe. Classic Unhinged. I mean, and also really funny. Yes. In, in the, moments where... The, the constant lobster. <laughs> and like, this is the way he delivers those like grandiose toasts yeah every time and, and Pattinson's just sitting there he's like I just want to eat my fucking soup yeah <laughs> so good um and there are technically two other not technically there are two other performers in the cast we don't see all that much of either of them but um it's Valeria Caramon as the mermaid um and Logan Hawks who plays um I guess we're doing spoilers. The real Ephraim Winslow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, both fine, I would say. Yeah. The mermaid's creepy. The mermaid's creepy. She like mostly stares. Yeah. A little some screaming here and there. Yeah. Um, Ephraim has a, has a creepy look to him as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Okay. All right. So, when our film opens, as we've said, uh, our two gentlemen, Pattinson and Defoe, Ephraim and Thomas Wake, are arriving on a very isolated, middle-of-nowhere island, somewhere off the coast of New England. Um, Wake is a longtime lighthouse keeper, particularly for this lighthouse, and Ephraim is a uh, newbie on the job. He's um, a wiki, uh, which was slang term used at the time um, to refer, I think to lighthouse keepers in general, but particularly for like junior lighthouse keepers like him. Yeah, when I would look into it, it would just say lighthouse keepers. Like it wasn't, it didn't seem. Um, I think it comes from like trimming the wick. Yeah, which I guess was like, bitch work so they made the right 
the and other guy do it? Speaking of bitch work, you know, after their arrival at the island, that's basically what Wake makes Winslow do the entire time. Is just a shit ton of bitch work, a lot of grunt work. Um, Wake spends a solid amount of his time sleeping during the day. Then he makes them dinner, an awkward dinner that they eat at night. And it's clear that these two aren't, aren't getting along and that there's resentment from day one. You know, uh, Winslow's gotta clean out the chamber pot and- So gross. Yeah. There's some gross chamber pot scenes. There are some gross chamber pot scenes. He has to pump the cistern. He has to carry all this heavy shit everywhere. Um, He's got to drag the kerosene barrels up to the top of the lighthouse, but he never actually gets to go to the tippy top and and see the light because Wake doesn't let him up there. Um, In fact, Wake seems really preoccupied with the light to the point where he does something odd every night. What does he do every night, Ms. Mel? (laughs) So uh, on one night, um, Ephraim decides to like kind of sneak pretty close up there and he sees that Wake has apparently like gotten naked <laughs> in front of the light and he's kind of standing in like an arms outstretched out, out pose in front of the light and then obviously he's clearly like masturbating because at one point he sees like semen drip yeah. um, in front of him and he's like oh okay He's, he's just trying to get a tan. Yeah. So that's what's happening there. Um, yeah. And, you know, during all this, the thing about this movie is a lot of it is montages. Like a lot of this is kind of like happening on top of each other. Yeah. So during one of these nightly jaunts, um, Ephraim starts to have a vision of like tentacles or sea monsters that mm-hmm. he thinks he sees in the water. And it turns out to be like, floating driftwood and that sort of thing but that's one of those sequences where we talked about Pattinson getting uh, swept out to sea because he walks out there at one point to try and see what it is um he is very resistant to drinking at first um mm-hmm. wake is like has these really big toasts and he's like trying to get him to drink and he's just not he, he doesn't like drinking so like you get the sense that he's kind of dealing with um whatever concept of alcoholism they had back then um but eventually he starts he like gives into that and um Mm -hmm. uh, starts drinking um there's also a bit about a um a seagull that's kind of creepy that we've mentioned that um wake like like Ephraim's like really annoyed by the seagull. It like annoys the shit out of him. It's like everywhere and it's watching him. And we know it's the same one because it's got like a fucked up eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of like, he like throws things at it. Like he tries to, you know, like hit it with stuff and Wake gets really pissed off and tells him not to do it because he believes that goals are like the souls of reincarnated or dead and, and reincarnated sailors. Um, which I think is like, I mean, like, I don't know if that's a, you know, that's a, worldwide sailing thing but i do know especially because the the main timber industry comes up in this in this film right um that's like a common thing like i guess you could say throughout maine because in the lumber industry they believed owls in the woods were the souls of fallen 
lumberjacks who were Jacks. who were killed um mm-hmm. so interesting thing about birds and dead, yeah. dead men doing grunt work um but um at one point um we learned that the wiki who was working there before Ephraim um had died in some fashion um after like losing his shit um because wake is like you know can you handle it like you know it's four weeks like we're out here um and you know Ephraim's like yeah like you know I was a logging man and this other stuff um which is I actually have done a lot of recent research into logging it's apparently a very um seasonal job and this also will play into our discussion about the uh homoeroticism of this film and the lgbtq subtext or just text in that um (laughs) lumberjacking was kind of this way that a lot of men would um try and like prove their masculinity in like the quote-unquote you know like floofiness of urban areas that were popping up they would be like oh i'm gonna go be a man up in up with other men right getting sweaty in their yeah tight shirts up in in maine so there's a lot to unpack there women right especially with ephraim um but you know we learned that he used to be um you know the skinniest lumberjack in history yeah and like, I, I guess he was like, so one of the jobs that lumberjacks had was there would be a guy who would climb up the tree and there would be other guys who would actually do the work of felling the tree. So I'm thinking he was the guy who climbed up the tree. We're going to, we're going to say that that was Ethan's job. Yeah. But anyway, so, you know, they start to whatever, they're getting along ish enough that they're not going to kill each other. Um, and it comes about time for Ephraim to be done his little stint and head off back into the world, but some stuff starts to go down. Yeah. So it's Ephraim's last day, or what is meant to be his last day on the island. The, the relief ship is coming. Um, he still has to do some bitch work. You know, like Ms. Mel said, he and Wake have been getting along ish um that's kind of due to uh, uh their alcohol consumption they've sort of been opening up to each other but you know then things sort of like snap back into um the power dynamic that's been established so you know he's got to do his grunt work so he goes out to the cistern one last time because the, the water's been absolutely unbearable to drink right on the island and that's what kind of what prompts him to to give him to drink some of the alcohol. But he goes out to the system and he finds a dead seagull in there. Now it's not the seagull (laughs) because that seagull shows up at that moment and is sort of taunting him. And Ephraim was sort of like, I fucking had it with this shit. It's been a month of this bird. Now there's a dead one in this cistern. I can't get clean water. I have to clean it out of there. It's gross, it's disgusting. He attacks the one-eyed seagull and is able to grab a hold of it by the neck and savagely beats it against a rock. Just wails on that thing. Just yeets it against the 
And right at that moment, the wind changes. And we find out very shortly thereafter that because of this change in the wind, a storm is coming in. And it's quite a violent storm. And in the wake of the storm, the relief ship can't get through. It's nowhere to be found. And so Ephraim's stay at the lighthouse and on the island is now quite extended. And we're not entirely sure how extended it's going to be. To make matters worse, the storm was so violent that it has spoiled their remaining rations. They have no food, and it's unclear how much longer they're going to have to wait until there is food slash rescue. But, oh, 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 Wake remembers there are emergency rations. So they dig up this treasure chest to be like, okay, emergency rations, what do we got? And in a some sort of cruel sailor type joke, what somebody else on the island has decided is needed in an emergency is not food, but more booze. The treasure is full of gin. And like, sure. Yeah. I what do you think I did on my last day out before quarantine started? Because all the liquor stores shut down in Pennsylvania. Yeah. They get it. They get it. So really no food. There's no clean water to drink. All they have is alcohol and an unclear sense of when things are going to look up for them. And Wake just keeps making Winslow do menial tasks and sort of stick to the order. Just keep going. So he has to keep dragging this back and forth. He has to keep emptying the chamber pots. He has to keep, uh, you know, whatever, painting the lighthouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and on one of his chores, he discovers that something has washed ashore. And that something is a mermaid. Maybe. Because Ephraim has had his own masturbatory secret. He's been sneaking down to the tool shed every night with a scrimshaw carving of a mermaid and jerking off to it. Now he sees what appears to be a real life mermaid on the rocks and simultaneously flees but also has sort of like this haunting vision, dream, nightmare sequence where he's making love with the mermaid. And then he gets really scared off by her mermaid vagina. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so we're not sure what really happened there because we're not really sure what's happening with these guys in general because it's, getting quite clear that as the tension is mounting and as things are looking more dire, they're both not exactly holding on to their sanity in the easiest way. And I think all of us having lived through quarantine can relate to that. So it's at this point that I do believe that they have their big drunken confession with each other, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
You want to tell us about that? Sure. So basically, um, like things kind of like escalate, like they're drinking gin. They'll have these moments of like really being like friendly and almost intimate with each other. And that, that can flip around into just like hostile arguments. There's this constant back and forth about wakes like lobster. Right. Like which both echoes like a married couple arguing over like dinner. And then like the lobster being like a metaphor for <laughs> wakes dong, I guess. Um, <laughs> so like this is going on. Um, and, and basically, um, one night, um, Ephraim, like, drinking, you know, tells Wake that his name isn't actually Ephraim Winslow. Um, his name is actually Thomas Howard. Um, and Ephraim Winslow, the real Ephraim Winslow, was a foreman at the lumber camp he worked at who had died as a result of um, Ephraim's purposeful neglect during his job, which I can only assume was climbing trees. <laughs> um, that skinny bitch. Yeah. And <laughs> Wake like reacts pretty violently to this. Um, yeah. They get into an altercation. He's that, I think this was in the trailer, the spilling the beans thing. Yeah. Was in the trailer, like the re repetition of this line, but he, he accuses him of this. Um, and he's, He's angry and he's tweaked out and he decides to take an ax to the one rowboat, the dory that they have and just right. whip that to shreds. So now they fully have- Because Winslow was trying to use it to escape. Yeah, because yeah. um, they got into a chase basically. Um, yeah, so he just, he he's like, no, you're not leaving me here. You can't, you know? So he destroys the boat and there's, there's no way off now fully. Um, <laughs> However, <laughs> um, when people start to not even like come to, but there's, there's some discrepancy about who did what and why. Because in the retelling, Wake says that um, Ephraim, now we know as Thomas, Thomas Howard, um, is the one who actually chased him and took an ax to the dory. Mm -hmm. We don't know. We don't know. But this is what's happening. Um, and at this point, they have started, they're, they're running out of alcohol. So they've started drinking a strange mixture of turpentine Ugh. and like fermented honey, honey that I guess they're trying to ferment. Um, and their relationship is just deteriorating. Um, you know, they're continuing to have these fights. Wake accuses Howard, Ephraim, whatever, of being like a, a drunkard. Mm -hmm. And there's this part where he says he's going he's gonna to dock him with no pay, which seems ridiculous at this point because they seem like the only two men on earth. <laughs> um, and it's just, it, it, things are deteriorating quickly. Very quickly. Um, and we kind of start to lead to our, our climax. Yeah. Um, this is when the tension and the spats and the arguments finally culminate <laughs> and, the, and the chase with an ax, no matter who did it. Yeah. Um, 
culminates in a full-on brawl between um, the two of them. And we mostly see it from Winslow's perspective because during the fight, he starts hallucinating the mermaid and her um, pulsing genitalia. Her shark her, vagina. Her shark vagina. And um, <laughs> her shark vajage. Uh, and he sees the real uh Ephraim sort of like as a haunting specter he's also in his mind he's seeing wake as um this sort of uh, tentacled barnacled protean like figure um and think that, like um like all the guys on Davy Jones ship yes yeah like a like a flying Dutchman crew member yeah and um and this pushes him into like savagely beating and kicking Wake until like Wake is Wake is broken. There, he's not going to be punching back. Like Winslow has gone all out, and he's he. he there's this odd moment right after this, after he wins the fight, where he turns Wake into this like groveling dog-like yeah. um, servant to him for a brief moment. He walks him out <laughs> of the house to the hole where the treasure was mm-hmm. and um, he kicks him in there and he's, he's going to bury Wake alive um, and Wake will be the new treasure. <laughs> and um, it's at this point that Wake delivers this very long Shakespearean curse. That oh my did. God. Yeah. It's like one of those things where it's like, like I understand, it's like, it's like, yeah, like I understand I'm burying you alive, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> like Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's a savage curse. And um, the main points of it basically being that uh, uh Ephraim uh, Thomas Howard, as he is now revealed to be, will um, will suffer a Promethean fate, um, and Howard is kind of like fuck off, um, and he takes the keys to the lantern uh, room because you know Wake has never allowed him up there this whole time. They've been there over a month. He's never been able to go up there, and so he's like, I'm gonna, you're gonna choke on dirt and I'm gonna go up and see the light. Um, but Wake is like, fuck that. And um, there's another chase. The ax comes back into play. Um, it's all a very Shining-esque for a while there. And um, they basically scuffle, um, not to the top of the lighthouse, but they, they scuffle back inside the lighthouse and then Howard disarms Wake once again um, and he, yeah, he hits him with the ax. He kills him with the ax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we don't actually see the killing blow though. No. It happens off screen. Um, yeah, Howard kills Wake and then he finally gets what he wants. He goes all the way to the top of the lighthouse. He goes um, through the grate to see um, the lantern, to see the um, Fresnel lens as it's called. 
and it's rotating and he's like, oh my God. And then it stops <laughs> and the, it opens, the, the lens opens. And um, then we cut to Howard looking in. We don't know what he sees. We don't see what he sees. We watch his face as he reacts to what he's seeing. And then he lets out this guttural, distorted, like primal scream, um, which causes him to lose his balance. And he tumbles all the way down the lighthouse steps. And then there's a really interesting moment where we pause and then we cut and now we're outside and we see Howard splayed on the rocks, mm -hmm. completely naked. He's maybe dead, maybe not quite. We're not super sure, but there are a bunch of seagulls um, circling around him to poke out um, his exposed intestines. Um, and as we sort of like zoom out and close over him, we notice that he now only has one eye. Some might say a uh, Promethean fate. Some might say a Promethean fate has been visited. And so closes the film. So for those of you that know your mythology, some of this probably sounds pretty familiar to you. Um, how Howard does end up suffering the literal Promethean fate, right? Yeah. Story of Prometheus brought light, fire, knowledge to humans and was punished by eternally having his intestines pecked out by birds as mm -hmm. he was exposed to nature. That's literally what happens to Howard at the end of this film. Um, there's also the Proteus imagery, which comes up again. I'm not as familiar with Proteus. I know he was like a sea adjacent type figure. Yeah, he was like a Poseidon. Like he he like worked for Poseidon or related to Poseidon, but his big thing was that he was like a an omen speaker, mm. like a prophetic mm. um, water creature. Sure. Okay. So prophetic omen delivering the curse. Mm -hmm prophesying how Howard was going to meet his end. Makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, Eggers has talked about drawing on Freud and Jung a lot um, when thinking about the film. That was part of their research. Obviously, there's a fair amount of phallic imagery in this movie. Um, scrimshaw carving, uh, the cistern pump. The lighthouse itself. And the lighthouse itself. In fact, there was supposed to be um, in the original version, a shot of the lighthouse moving like an erect penis. And then that shot was supposed to be smashed cut with a shot of Robert Pattinson's actual erect penis. Um, but this juxtaposition was not included in the film at the request of some of the financial backers who were nervous about getting an NC-17 rating. Um, so I don't know if that meant that this was filmed. Right, does it exist out there? And they yeah. like, did test screenings and they were like, no. Yeah, I, I, I didn't dig that far into it. Um, if it 
was, or I guess even if it would have been, I mean, like props to Pattinson for being willing to do that. Assuming it would have been his actual penis. I know. I was like, would that, yeah. It might've, maybe it would have been. It would have been a, a actual penis. It would have been an actual penis on screen, which is rare. Um, but that's not what we get, but we still get tons of uh, penile imagery. Um, obviously we've alluded to the text and the subtext and the um, pretty obvious reading that you can make of both characters as gay, particularly um, Winslow slash Howard. Um, and that the relationship between the two is, is very homoerotic, a lot of dialogue. You're pretty as a picture. Your eyes are mm -hmm. as bright as a lady's. Um, and a lot of stuff that happens in the film, they're both masturbating in secret. Um, there, there's a lot of um, hugging and cuddling when they're on good terms with each other. Like uh, Wake's head is in Windows lap at one point. There's a moment where they almost kiss. Um, Pattinson said there was apparently one take of the fight where they like pantsed each other. So, uh, you know, um, do you, do you, what are your, what are your thoughts on? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like anything, obviously where you have, um, men who choose to be isolated with other men, especially for whatever reason in period pieces. Um, I think you get that because, you know, it's 1890, how else are you going to like have that sort of freedom and privacy and that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, especially with Winslow who comes, you know, who, who enters the story having come off a stint at a lumber camp up in Northern Maine, which, you know, there's a ton of subtext there when it comes to like readings of masculinity and homosexuality and that sort of thing. Um, you know, like, I've, I feel like this was done in a way where it, um, you know, it felt fluid and, mm -hmm. and natural. Because, I mean, you see them, like, you see Winslow, he's masturbating to, like, a female mermaid figurine. But then you also have these sort of, <clears throat> you know, like, confused bits of, of his, like, non-sexual, like, emotionally intimate moments with... Um, with Wake and then you have like kind of this like shaded history that you can kind of fill in the blanks on and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And what struck me as interesting with Winslow and the mermaid when he's masturbating to the figure, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's a mermaid. So she has fish scale tail and her breasts are exposed. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, we interpret her as female, but there's no um, there's no downstairs equipment on right on the on, yeah right. And in fact, he kind of even moves his thumb over the tail in the one shot. Mm -hmm. So like he's kind of just looking at the breast. And then when we compare that to when he's with the actual mermaid, maybe, and we get the version of her mermaid vagina, that's when he freaks out and runs away. Yeah, it's which I guess they used to like a shark vagina. Apparently, which apparently like, are terrifying if you didn't know. It was a pretty gross image. Yeah. 
Yeah, but no, that's like like kind of like the peak of that kind of reading, right? Is like a man gets freaked out by a vagina. Yeah, he's like, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and also like, and you were saying, and coming from, uh, you know, he comes from this lumber world and there's all kinds of complicated readings there we can do about masculinity in that world. And, um, and we find out that he, he took the real Ephraim's name Mm-hmm. And, and like so even just the idea of taking someone's name like after marriage like I feel like there's something there you know because there's a lot about what you're called in this movie right because um, he's going by a fake name a name that's not his it was another man's and you know Wake just calls him lad you know for the first portion of the movie and he's like my name's Winslow I want you to call me Winslow and it's kind of like this like point of contention between them and they're like weird married couple spats so there's a lot there with like naming and identity and yeah I guess we kind of like jumped ahead to our view from the closet portion but that's okay yeah Um, any other major analyses or angles that we could come at the film that we haven't hit yet um no I mean like uh with the Jungian and Freudian stuff. Like, I don't know enough about it to like really dive in besides the fact that I could say like, yeah, this feels very Freudian. Um, I did recently read a very good piece or a very good book that's like a psychoanalytic book about like sort of the concept of a haunting as a psychological phenomenon. And it's something that I will bring up more and like, I don't know, maybe one day we can do a whole episode kind of on the concept, but basically Avery Gordon, who's a psychoanalyst, um, talks about like examining people like haunting quote unquote um, as an alternative in psychoanalysis, basically to describe what quote unquote the the screaming presence, uh, which appears to not be present, um, you know, that sort of thing. It's all very interesting. Like basically the the power in um absence or what people are not saying or or you know kind of like what is understood to be the elephant in the room and that sort of thing which I feel like this is a a kind of good movie for that because you get the sense from the very beginning that there's something Winslow's not talking about and like you don't Mm -hmm. trust Wake and his story about what happened to the previous wiki Um, And there's a lot of back and forth about like, okay, who had the ax, who was chasing who, who said what, and that sort of thing. Um, You know, and from, for Winslow in particular, it has to do with, you know, like he's got this past, um, you know, and he feels haunted by um, Ephraim, like the real Ephraim Winslow, because he sees his his figure, his, his specter, his ghost on the island. He's carrying his name with him and that sort of thing. so it's definitely stuff will bring up more as it becomes more and more applicable. But this is yeah. like the Jungian Freudian film, I feel like, as of late. Yeah, definitely. It's very, very classical in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of this movie is um, just in the way it was filmed and written and what it's working with. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, um, We'll quickly talk a little bit about how the film did, which was um, 
relatively well. It premiered at Cannes um, as part of the director's Fortnite portion um, on May 19th of 2019. Uh, it was also screened at the Toronto International Film Festival and the Atlantic Film Festival that September. And then it opened theatrically on October 18th of 2019, distributed by A24 domestically and Focus Features internationally. Uh, it would uh, have a total worldwide gross of 18.3 million against a budget of 4 million. So for a small film like this, pretty good. Um, it has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 90%, a Metacritic score of 83, an IMDb ranking of 7.5, and a Letterboxd score of 4.1 out of 5. So pretty well received across the board. Again, IMDb is always like the slight outlier because it's yeah. all user driven. Um, the positive reviews praised Edgar's exceptional direction, the powerhouse performances of both Pattinson and Defoe, the production design, the themes, the dark tone, both comedic and dramatic, pretty much everything that we have hit upon and also shared appreciation for. And the film was nominated for a Best Cinematography Oscar, but it lost to 1917. And uh, for a number of other categories in 19 other different awards, most prominently it was up for five Independent Spirit Awards, uh, won two for cinematography and uh, Defoe won Best Supporting Actor. And it also got a BAFTA nomination for Yaren Boschke's Cinematography. So. Um, that being said, we will move into the end portion of our discussion now. I think, um, one good scare, what was, what freaked you out the most? I feel like the sound design on that final shot with the light and his scream just was really, I don't even know if it was like, you know, it's, it, it, it is a scare though, because it freaks me out. It unsettled me just like the, the way like that whole um, scene was edited and constructed uh, was pretty freaky. Yeah, I, that is really freaky. Like everything basically like from when he gets to the light yeah. to the end of the, the film is really disturbing. Um, and apparently they were like, uh, the script gave no indication of of what they saw in the light. It was just you know, yeah. notation on how to react. Like, yeah. um, which is pretty cool. Which, you know, I always enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree to you. I think it was also um, pretty freaky, sort of like the first time um, Winslow has like his vision of the tentacles. Mm -hmm. You're like, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, it's like the first, like up until that point, it's like, okay, like weird gruff period piece. And then all of a sudden it's like Lovecraftian yeah. monster in the sea. I don't know. Yeah, and you're like, okay, now we're dealing with something very different here. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll close out with this question, which is if you were stuck as a lighthouse keeper, would you want to be stuck with Robert Pattinson? Or Willem Dafoe? Their characters or them? Them. Mm. See, it's interesting because I feel like Willem Dafoe would be a lot of fun. <laughs> but also, like, the flip side of that coin is he'd also be freaky. 
Because <laughs> he's nuts. Because he's nuts. Um, and I feel like Robert Pattinson would just be like this like quiet, studious, boring, brooding dude. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, I guess, I guess Defoe, I, I'll go with nuts instead of <laughs> like just this weird lurking gangly skinny guy who might turn out to be an ax murderer. Like at least Defoe, it's like, okay, like, yeah, I see it coming if you stab me. Right. You're anticipating it. There's no surprises there. Yeah. <laughs> it's my own fault. Yeah. You're not going to be bored while you're stuck there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm leaning towards Defoe as well. <laughs> On the other hand, if I was stuck with Pattinson, I could talk to him about the new Batman movie. Right. <laughs> so he has that edge there. I might have to give it to him for that. So you be stuck with Defoe. I'll be stuck with Pattinson. Okay, we'll be on dueling lighthouses and we'll dueling see. Dueling lighthouses. They're shining at each other. Yeah. <laughs> who gets who gets off in the end? <laughs> it's free. All right. Well, I think unless there's something um glaring that we missed or something you desperately want to say this is gonna wrap up our discussion on the lighthouse yeah yeah i think so okay well in that case um do feel free to let us know your own thoughts about uh the lighthouse and um promethean fates and scrimshaw and masturbation yeah uh, there's it's so pride many. you guys yeah <laughs> There's so many ways you can tell us your thoughts. Um, oh, you know what? Miss Mel will give you the rundown. Mm -hmm. Any of those items, if you want to tweet them at us, you can tweet at splatterchatter666, minus all vowels. If that's too difficult, just search will pop right up. You can email at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. Uh, you can send us one of those, what do they call them on Tumblr? They don't call them DMs, PMs, private messages. There's different lingo on everything, but so, you can you can find us on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com, um, and you can find the blog at splatter-chatter.com. And it only took like fifty episodes for me to get it with some semblance of confidence. All it was was the dash, and it really threw you. Yeah, off. Yeah, it really threw me off. <laughs> um, yeah, so please do um, share your thoughts with us. Uh, for our next episode in July, we are going to be doing our very first director deep dive. Um, it was an idea that we actually had way back when we first decided to do this show to have episodes where we focused on the career of a particular director. But like 80 some episodes in is the first time we're actually getting around to doing that. Um, and it was Miss Mel's idea. So do you want to share which director we're going to be discussing. Sure. So after recent viewings of films and, you know, uh, really diving into the aesthetic and being like, hey, you know what? I, I like all these films and I feel like I want to rewatch all of them. Uh, we decided that we are going to do a deep dive into the horror career of one James Wong. That's right. Um, like, probably the golden boy of horror right now I and mean, there there's a couple but i mean he's up there he's had mainstream success he does big budget 
superhero blockbusters now. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is also the creative mind behind um, some of horror's uh, greatest films from the last 20 years. So we're gonna be taking a look at him. We'll talk some Saw, we'll talk some Insidious, we'll talk some Conjuring. It'll be pretty good stuff. Um, yeah. So look for that in July. And until such a time, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And for now, we will say au revoir. Adios. Das.